Rockers. Welcome to Hoosier Illusion, hosted by me, Neil Tafflinger, and Ryan J. Downey, two grown-up hardcore punks, longtime journalists, and longtime friends born and bred in Indianapolis, Indiana. After growing apart, we're reuniting to talk about who we were, who we are, and where we're going. Follow along as we navigate the rugged terrain of our mental landscapes, littered with pop culture, subculture, and the odd reference to Johnny Ringo, James Dean, Axl Rose, and other notable Hoosiers. Episode 11, we're continuing a little bit of our origin stories, talking about our first bands from high school. If you missed episode 10, go back and listen to that one first. Learn all about Neil's early triumphs and humiliations, navigating his way into bands. And this episode, it's my turn. This is Hoosier Illusion, part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. I mean, you win the contest here in terms of actually getting out there and having experience because both my first band and second band failed to ever perform shows. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say one of them might have made it to a battle of the bands where we didn't end up setting up and playing, but that could be some weird Mandela effect, false memory implant I've given myself, like Wolverine. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But my first two bands didn't manage to play a show, and then my third band managed to play a show only once <laughs> with a fill-in drummer. So it wasn't until Hardball, actually, that uh, I played shows, played several shows, made a demo, made a 7-inch, which didn't make its way out till posthumously, uh, and performed out of state, you know, traveled to Louisville, Kentucky, and St. Louis, Missouri, and Chicago, Illinois, and somewhere in Michigan, and actually played shows out of town while I was still in high school. So that was fun. But Yeah, that's such a crazy differentiator between the lives we lived as high schoolers and other people. Yes, right? And just, yeah, the experience of being in high school, sitting in a diner in Chicago on our way in Matt Reese's family station wagon to play at Club Blitz, which was the basement of Tony Brummel, the founder of Victory Records, who at that time had released uh, only a handful of seven inches. You know, Billing, Billing Skate and Insight were those the first two, and uh, Integrity was the third. And and yeah, we I don't even remember who we played with, but uh, talk about you know Indianapolis was the you know whatever foundation was to birthright at that time or you know whatever comparison there is to make indianapolis was to chicago because while hardball was a legitimate and viable hardcore band in the fledgling indianapolis hardcore scene at the time when we went to club blitz we were mocked by the bullying jocks of the chicago hardcore scene that was like yeah. a real hardcore scene and we were fucking dorks Someone rolled a softball in front of the stage while we were playing. <laughs> that That is classic hardcore kid shade. Yeah, we were openly mocked. And 
we were all the reason oh, the reason why I mentioned being in the diner on the way up is I remember someone asking us if we were a band. And again, we're like 15 and 16. And I remember uh, us telling them we were suicidal tendencies. Um, <laughs> and we were this was an era where we were all wearing blue do rags and, you know, dress shirts like buttoned only at the top. And so and that's how we rolled into <laughs> into Club Blitz. You know, these white trash teenagers basically cosplaying as suicidal tendencies and legitimately attending schools that where gang violence was common and being friends with actual gangbangers, which is a whole other story. But us, our white trash selves rolling into Club Blitz with these jocks who were in like Letterman straight edge jackets, which is just all the all the ways that punks mocked straight edge hardcore dudes for being jocks were like all those stereotypes were real at that time in that yeah. Chicago environment. Like they were dicks, they were bullies and they were like preppy buff sporty dudes that were like the villains and like, you know, like villains out of the eighties movies. Anyway, they rolled a softball in front of us. And when Tony Brummel paid me our $20 that we got for driving four, four hours each way to Chicago to play that show, he stuffed the, $20 in my front shirt pocket on my Mike Muir-esque shirt and patted me on the chest and said, here you go, Holmes. So, yeah, we Ugh. one of those things, again, where, yeah, we didn't realize after the fact that we were mocked and made fun of the whole time. <laughs> like, yeah. You just think, like, wow, we're playing in Chicago. We're at Club Blitz. Cool. It's, it's brutal because looking back on it and like understanding what was going on with my own bands and then recounting all of the times I did that to other people. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah. And like you said, I mean, it, at some point then you become the cool kids and then you're mocking the not as cool kids and, you know, making fun of somebody for wearing a Marilyn Manson shirt to a terror show or what, you know, whatever goes yeah. on through the ages. Yeah. So, but that's all, you know, maybe, Maybe a podcast for another time, those bands, because those were in some, you know, like Birthright, Hardball was a quote unquote real band in a, in the hardcore sense. My first few bands were not and did not play shows. So my, my very first band, by middle school, I had gotten fully into thrash and freshman year in high school, I met, I met kids who were sophomores who were also thrash metal dudes. So we had our little lunch table where we could talk about Sacred Reich and violence and Exodus and Metallica and Megadeth and Slayer and Anthrax and Overkill and Death Angel and Testament and all those bands that we all loved that were by no means popular. And it was, you know, a handful of outcasts, but the, the handful of outcasts that liked that stuff with me when I was in middle school was much smaller and my friends who liked that stuff went to other schools. So by the time I got to high school, now having like a half a dozen of us was like, it felt like, a, uh, it felt like something, you know, it was like bigger. We had enough to occupy half a lunch table. So in getting to know these two sophomores, Matt Reese and Byron Holton, I found out that they had a band with this kid, Owen. Owen had a drum set, a double bass drum set that his dad had, had gotten him in a house that was big enough to have a room dedicated to being a practice room. Byron played guitar. Matt played bass. Matt owned a PA system. Those dudes had come more like they had gotten into thrash coming out of hair metal. But it was cool to me because like Matt Reese had like long hair and had a BC Rich 
bitch or a BC Rich, a BC Rich Warlock, a pink BC Rich Warlock bass. They were like real metal dudes, and I was I had yet to become a hardcore punk. I was uh, still in my thrash metal phase. And uh, they were like, yeah, we have a band, we get together, we have these practices, we write these songs, we don't have a singer, do you want to be our singer? And it was literally, it was just through the sheer, just the fact that, you know, just finding like-minded people who like the same things. It was so rare, and there was no internet, that, you know, blah, 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 all the old man stuff. You know, we're in the south side of Indianapolis, Indiana, it's the late 80s, and we've all just the fact that we liked the same things was enough to start hanging out and for them to invite me to be in their band. They said, learn. And Reese, who's still one of my very close friends that, you know, lasted all these years, possibly my oldest friend that I'm still in contact with. I think so. It, I remember Metallica's welcome home sanitarium, death angel board uh, for whom the bell tolls. Am I Evil, which we knew as more or less a Metallica song, but of course was actually a Diamond Head song that Metallica covered. Maybe Creeping Death? I definitely remember those songs were all on the docket. And I remember, I think I might have mentioned this in, in some other context in Hoosier, on a Hoosier Illusion episode before, perhaps, but my older brother, who was playing bass in bands at that point, was five years older than me, I remember him coming home and I was listening to all those songs and writing down lyrics and so on. And my brother asked me what I was doing. And I said, these kids at school asked me to come sing in their band. And I remember my brother very wisely telling me, you know, cause I, I think I was nervous and you know, I, I'd never sung before. I didn't know, you know, unlike you, I didn't have any kind of singing background. I didn't know what that was going to be like. My brother very wisely told me, you know, when you get in that room with those guys, it's not going to sound like this. Hmm. <laughs> And I just, you know, I didn't have any concept of that. And gosh, it was such great advice because of course he was right. Uh, you know, my three dipshit friends from high school trying to play For Whom the Bell Tolls definitely did not sound like Metallica playing For Whom the Bell Tolls. <laughs> oh, you know, we, we did our best, but that definitely helped sort of level the the field and the expectations and, and the pressure I was putting on myself to like, you know, deliver some kind of note perfect badass performance of these songs yeah. so and that's part of the beauty of that era of metal is that it was it was so it was much more accessible it wasn't like you know hey we're gonna do this dio and ingve momstein shit <laughs> you know <laughs> that uh you had to really have chops uh you know it was thrash metal so anyway went did those songs they had a couple of of originals that they had me learn uh, one was called Echoes from the from Beyond the Grave, which began with like a creepy spoken word thing that Reese did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, fuck, what was another song? Gosh, I gotta I gotta ask Reese to remind me of these songs. But the band, much like Foundation, was called Outcast, which has yeah. undoubtedly been the name of a million other bands definitely there was an outcast from Ohio that was like a hardcore band that I'm sure didn't exist yet. And we certainly weren't aware of, but I'm sure there were countless out, out, out uh, outcasts around the world, but, but the band was called outcast. So here's the interesting thing. If any of this is interesting that happened shortly after we realized that the drummer, no offense was terrible, even, even too terrible for the other three of us. And in becoming friends and hanging out more particularly Reese and I and then our friend Byron 
we started to discover crossover. Um, we started getting into DRI and corrosion conformity and uh, crumb suckers and Ludacrist and these bands that were combining thrash with punk and of course stormtroopers the death and and as we got into that stuff and then started discovering the chromags and you know actual hardcore stuff we wanted to take our thrash cover band with a couple of originals from the thrash world and dive headfirst into the punk world like we wanted to do like a dri coc type of band and our drummer wasn't going to be on board with that and wasn't really going to get it and wasn't very good. So that was our first experience. And I don't know if we even kicked him out so much as we just stopped going over there. We then set about trying to find a drummer for the new version of Outcast, which was rechristened Rejected Fuckups. And the reason it was called Rejected Fuckups, aside from being a better name than Outcast, was that it made for a nice three-letter acronym like DRI and COC. <laughs> that was the main point. It was less about Thinking rejected fuck-ups and more about having a, a letter, letter, letter name with periods in between. So we were RFU, and a friend of mine, J.J. Johnson, drew a logo for us and a and stickers uh, that uh, that said RFU munching on dead rats. I don't remember where that came from or why that was a joke that was funny to us or whatever, but it was a, a cartoon. We had these stickers that we put up around Southport high school. That was a, a cartoon of someone eating a dead rat with a fork, like just a, <laughs> just a rat stuck to a fork and a mouth eating it. it was, I mean, when you think about it, it was pretty fucking on brand, like 89, <laughs> 1989, yeah. like thrash punk doing the punk crossover thing and uh, embarrassingly enough, much more embarrassing than Echoes from Beyond the Grave, which they wrote, were the two songs I wrote for RFU. One was called Malicious Government, and I don't remember the lyrics, but I just know that it was about, like, you know, the government being malicious. Being malicious. malicious. <laughs> uh, and it was definitely inspired by Sacred Reich Surf Nicaragua and because it was, you know, it was about, like, U.S. intervention in Latin America. <laughs> Hey, everything old is new again. Yeah, BTW. I was 14. <laughs> and then Byron wrote a song about some girl he hated called Die Bitch Die, which I remember, not to say that I was woke yet by any means, but I do remember even at 14 being uncomfortable singing a song called Die Bitch Die. <laughs> like, just knowing that, like, this is all, I don't, I don't know. How I feel about. <laughs> this feels a little, I believe, sexist is the word. Uh, yeah, I was already sort of not that into it. Uh, we were also, I wouldn't say influenced, but inspired in the sense that we thought we could go somewhere by a band, most of whom went to our school called Radiation Sickness. And they were a crossover band. They actually had demos. They actually had classified ads and ads in Maximum Rock and Roll fanzine. So it, like, it seemed like they were like doing it you know, they played out of state. Their singer was, was older. He was like 19, you know, he was out of high school, I think dropped out or something, but they like, they seemed more like a real band to us, like than we were. And they were friends with another local band called Bluck that was also in that crossover yeah. thing and had like jokey, you know, their demo was called all blucked up and it was a cartoon of a dude puking in a toilet. Definitely like that thing. Like if, if you're listening to this and you know, the thing I'm talking about, like that was yeah. the thing that we were all into. And I remember uh, going to see Radiation Sickness play a house party in someone's basement. And I remember they covered Cryptic Slaughter, a story that I have now told many times to a close friend of mine 
Blasco, who's my oldest LA, my oldest friend in LA. I've been in California. One of my oldest friends in, in LA. I've been in California since 2001 and I've met him probably 2002 or 2003. He's currently the bass player for Ozzy Osbourne. Once upon a time was the bass player for Cryptic Slaughter. <laughs> and so it, it, yeah, it's fun crossing origin stories and telling him about me seeing a local Indianapolis band covering a cryptic slaughter song like 1989 <laughs> in someone's basement. So I have a vivid memory of that. And I have a vivid memory since this is Hoosier illusion and it's about mental health and it's about revealing the real shit. I also have a vivid memory of my stepmom and her little, little like Chevelle or whatever coming to pick me and my two friends up and the older brother of whoever was having the fucking house party coming down the stairs and announcing loudly to the like 50 punkers in the basement, Ryan Downey, your mommy's here to pick you up. <laughs> and everyone in the basement going, <laughs> and me and my two friends hanging our heads and sheepishly walking out of the basement and going up the stairs. It's like, we, we apologize for being 15. Right. In retrospect. Yeah, of course it's like, fuck you douchebag. But at the time it was like the most humiliating, like you feel like you're an inch tall and it's fucking terrible. Yeah. But yeah, you wish you could go back and tell yourself what you should have done. Uh, so anyway, so that was a fucking horrible memory. The radiation sickness dudes were like the cool kids because their bass player guitar player bass player one of the dudes in the band was named ryan rollins and he was he was cool he was older than me maybe two years older than me he had long hair he was he was like a cliff burton type figure or something like he was just some cool fucking metal dude he was unapproachable i actually tried to talk to him once in the hallway you know because again there were few people in our fucking high school wearing like corrosion conformity shirts and i remember him very dickishly literally ghosting me like straight up like me walking up to him and trying to talk to him about a band or something as we're walking down the hall and him rolling his eyes pretending i didn't exist and disappearing into a bathroom and uh <laughs> that was my only interaction with that dude ever and talk about you never know what shit people are dealing with that guy that kid 16 whatever uh hung himself in his garage uh while we were in high school and that was a big fucking deal. And I mean, wow, that was one of the first suicides I knew of. I didn't know him, but not only did I know of him, I thought he was like cool. I liked his band and we were in this same very small social circle. So that was a weird fucking crazy thing. And there was another guy who went to our high school who was in thrashy, metally crossover bands who was older than us who uh, Reese and I thought was super fucking cool because our uh, our school mascot were, was the Cardinals. And this guy wore a homemade shirt to school one day that said Southport High School Cardinals suck. And that just, like, <laughs> made him a legend to us. You know, because we're the fucking nerds and misfits. And he's, like, you know, we're freshmen and he's, like, a senior and he's, like, a misfit king, you know, and a big fuck you to everyone else at our school. And we thought it was awesome. That guy shot himself on his front porch or something. Like, uh, so those were suicide. That's the first suicides I ever was in proximity to were, you know, dudes in this little small, small ecosystem on the South side of Indianapolis of like thrash metal crossover bands that we were aspiring to be part of and, and looked up to and were a couple years older than us. It was around this time that I discovered straight edge and I had smoked weed. Matt Reese and I smoked pot together in a cemetery once, which is cool. I'm glad I did that. I tried whiskey and beer and I just, none of it never really took. 
I wasn't like against all of it, but I just wasn't into it. And when I discovered through fanzines and through the New York Hardcore The Way It Is cassette compilation that my friend who's since passed away, Alex Gibbons, rest in peace, gave to me, much like when my friend Dave Rogers gave me Megadeth Peace Cells, New York Hardcore The Way It Is sent me on this fucking journey into hardcore. And then I discovered Youth of Today. And as we were discovering this stuff, Reese and I and Byron and I, we were all discovering hardcore together and straight edge. And we all decided that we were going to be straight edge and that that was how we felt and that it spoke to what we, who we already were and what we were into and dudes in that like crossover scene were all about like weed and getting super wasted. And, and again, we're all talking teenagers, you know, but those dudes were all getting crazy. And we started to see straight edge as like the ultimate form of punk rock. Like, like, well, you know, I mean, it was very much a coming from a, for us from a pure sort of minor threat place of like, we're the punks within the punks, you know? And also we understood it in this minor threat, seven seconds, youth of today way of being positive and being about unity and the scene and all this stuff. So we were getting into that stuff. And as it would turn out, while there had been straight edge people in Indianapolis before us, there had never been a straight edge band. No one, there just, no one had, no four dudes, three dudes, three girls, four girls, whatever. No group of straight edge people had ever come together in Indianapolis and been like, we're a straight edge band and played shows or anything. We uh, decided that we wanted to turn our RFU rejected fuck ups band from a thrash crossover, jokey lyric band, political band into a straight edge hardcore band. Now, at this time, we had tried out one drummer who was a black kid from another side of town named Mario, who I think we found through Ben Davis High School, did a radio, like a shortwave radio station, radio show, metal thing where people would meet each other. Again, no fucking internet, no social media. Yeah. People, it, you know, it'd be like, Neil in Broad Ripple is a bass player looking for a band that sounds like Bad Religion. If that sounds cool to you, call Neil at 317. Like, it was shit like that. Yeah. We found this dude, Mario, and had a practice at his house. And sorry, Byron, if you're listening, but uh, we were then going to have a practice at Byron's house, and Byron's parents wouldn't let him come over because he was black. Indiana, ladies and gentlemen, 1989. So anyway, Mario, we tried to get on drums. That didn't work out. He lived too far. None of us drove. You know, it's fucking kids. So around this time, we're all becoming straight edge. We decided we want to start the, we want to become this straight edge band. So Byron, unwisely, in retrospect, as it turns out, told me, you know, I've got this girlfriend. She goes to a different school. Keep in mind, Byron and Reese were a year older than me. You know, she's like into metal and she's into like all the stuff we're into. And I'm trying to tell her about straight edge and I'm trying to get her to like be straight edge like we are now. And, um, <laughs> You are just so much better at like talking about stuff and persuading people and like, you know, being like a leader. And like, if I gave you my girlfriend's phone number, could you call her and just like explain why she should be straight edge? Again, I'm fucking 14. Gives me this stranger's number. I call her. We start talking. That develops into us becoming like phone friends. And then before you know it, this girl who I hadn't met yet, we're having this like, relationship behind byron's back via the phone and snail mail letters so we're yeah. like writing each other love letters and uh, yeah i'm you know i always say i've never cheated on anyone but yeah when i was 14 i definitely 
stole my best friend's girlfriend. And that that led to a Cold War for yes. decades? Yeah. It's fucking crazy. So I was under the impression... And then her and I, by the way, we got our, our parents to drive us to different places. And around this time, I became friends with Johnny Johnson, who then became the guitar. You know, Byron and I had a falling out. And then Johnny Johnson became the guitar player with Reese and I for our band that was still trying to find a drummer, which became known as Clear Sight, which holds the distinction of being Indianapolis's first straight edge band. And we not only played a show, but put on the show, uh, the three of us as promoters. We invited Bluck and a local band called the Wombats, who used to be called Enemy. Again, did, one, one did you them. invite a drummer as well? And we invited the drummer. We we told the Wombats they could play the show if their drummer would play drums for us. <laughs> so that's how we got away with having a drummer for the one and only show that we played. So th this all kind of crescendos here uh, because I was under the impression that this girl had broken up with Byron and was now my girlfriend. Byron was under the impression that I was pestering this girl and trying to woo her away from him and that she was resisting my advances. Clearly, you know, for better or worse, and not to throw her under the bus, but she was playing us both for whatever reason, whatever's going on in her life, you know, that we were both uh, having the wool pulled over our, our eyes. This girl became my first kiss which was at a war concert in the Howard Johnson's hotel ballroom <laughs> on the first Gore album, which Reese drove me to. And I met up with her there and she didn't know this. Cause I was, you know, again, you're 14 and you don't want to say this is my first kiss. So I lied to her and told her I'd kissed other girls before I hadn't. And then that became my first kiss. Again, she was my friend's girlfriend, which at that point I thought wasn't happening anymore. So him and I stopped talking. He immediately stops being straight edge. Sadly, one of the members of Radiation Sickness has committed suicide, which then also leaves a vacancy in that band. Byron joins that band. And that band's thing is drinking and drugs and partying. And uh, they had a side project called Cannabis Cranium, which I thought was an awesome name. Get it? Pothead. Uh, even back then, I appreciated a good pun. So he goes off into Radiation Sickness land, understandably hates me. And him and I are, are no longer talking and we're ghosting each other and mean mugging each other at school and whatever and our friendship's over and johnny johnson becomes sort of the new byron in my life because he is another blonde haired dude that plays guitar and uh he becomes straight edge and we become really close friends and me and him and reese do this band clear sight together so we rent out the local there was like a community center in southport indiana which was next to a police station literally next to a police station it's a tiny community center we rent it out to put on the show we make flyers. We put them up around our school. The show, I believe, was $3 to get into. And it was Bluck, Clear Sight, and the Wombats. The Wombats, who used to be called Enemy, and actually put out a 7-inch under the name Enemy. So they seemed like a real band. We played mostly originals. And they were all songs about, you know, there was a song called Perspective. There was a song called Clear Sight. And they were all about, like, positivity and unity and you know, being drug free to have like a clear mind and very, uh, very naive, optimistic songs. Yeah. And then we also Hardcore did starter pack. And then we also did because it was 1989 or 1990. We also did black flag depression, the descendants, silly girl, 
and the misfits who killed Marilyn because all of that just made sense together back then. <laughs> <laughs> there were, you know, the, we didn't, you know, you just didn't, there just wasn't like a, that didn't seem odd to put all those, to put the descendants and misfits and black flag together with all our straight hardcore songs. So we did that. And unbeknownst to us, the radiation sickness guys came to the show and by all accounts from other third parties came to the show to ruin it, knowing that it was next to a police station, knowing that we had scraped together the $150 or whatever and borrowed from our parents and stuff to rent the place out. They came and got wasted in the parking lot and left liquor bottles and beer bottles and so on all around the parking lot in some attempt to like get the show shut down. It didn't work and we didn't get in trouble but it did prevent shows from happening in that space ever again. So that was the first and only show in that space, which way to support the scene, fellas. Uh, <laughs> but it was our, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of it had to do with this rivalry, this love triangle between Byron and I. But then there was also this, it became this thing where it was like the druggy drinky guys hating the clean cut, dorky positive straight edge guys so after that first and only clear sight show little john and reese and i put on a show for a band called even score that we brought in from chicago which was tony victory on vocals and he was selling three seven inches out of a cardboard box one of which was the integrity seven inch which was so new it didn't have covers yet we had met some kids from the north side curtis mead and steve Dijinsky through the classified section of maximum rock and roll the north side which was like 20 minutes away but when we were that age and back then it seemed like it was another yeah. pla another planet you know we'd met these kids they were straight edge kids they started a band their band was called split lip around the same time we were doing clear sight you know shortly after that they, they started their band and we became friends and we put on this show for even score who brought another band from chicago with them called trench mouth whose drummer was a guy named Fred Armisen, who uh, many years <laughs> went, later... Went on, on to do a few things. Went on to do a few things. I talked to him about this show at the MTV Movie Awards, by the way, a few years back. <laughs> and he totally, was, and he totally he, remembered it. Really? The VFW Hall in Beach Grove. Yeah, even score in Trenchmouth. There's a bunch of pictures from that show. There's a lot of Indianapolis characters that people from Indianapolis subculture and hardcore would recognize. Uh, so was, was your show at club blitz, like a payback for the even yes. score show in beach Grove? Yeah. And it, and it was, and that was actually quite a good bit later. Cause I, I became friends with Tony Brummel through doing that show, which didn't stop him from being a condescending prick. Exactly. Exactly. 1000%. And that show was really great for them, by the way. And they sort of created or helped create a modern hardcore scene in Indy with that one show because they, looked like hardcore kids you know they had the crew cuts with bleached hair they were all vegetarian and straight edge and you know they were wearing you know cargo shorts and hardcore t-shirts and vans and like shit that we weren't hip to yet you know and yeah their songs were really rudimentary and had these sing-along choruses and tony brummel would uh, you know you could see his future in marketing he would teach the crowd the choruses before the songs no one had heard these <laughs> songs you know 
And he would say, like, all right, this song's called, like, you know, fucking Stabbed in the Back. And the chorus goes, Stabbed in the Back, Stabbed in the Back, Don't Stab Me Again. Well, I'm making it up. But, you yeah. know, but he, he would tell the crowd it's, that. It's probably as good as Stephen's Horse yeah, Evidence. Exactly. And then he would tell the crowd that and have the crowd fucking re- rehearse it back to him. And then they would play the song. And then you would have a, a fucking a sing-along. A sing-along. Yeah. And there's pictures of all of us singing along to Evenscore, the songs we were just hearing for the first time. So That's amazing. Kind of brilliant. Yeah. Um, I met... Oh, I met so many people at that show for the first time. Yeah, just a lot of Indianapolis characters of varying degrees of stature and lore and comedy were at that show. So here's where it all ties back in and ties back in the first bands. And where I'm so that, that show is basically the beginning of the actual straight edge scene in the city. There might have been straight edge kids, yes. but there wasn't actually a scene until that sort of crystallizing yeah. moment. Curtis, Curtis Mead... Steve Dijinsky, I met Charlie Walker for the first time at that show. Little John was mainly the promoter there, and, and Reese made flyers, and I helped somewhere in there. It was really Little John's show. But we, you know, and we became friends with grown-ups from Chicago. And, and, and yeah, and not long afterwards, Hardball and Split Lip were playing together, and dudes from Endpoint came up to the show. And, you know, Reese, Reese met those guys, I think, through a fanzine, and... You know, Duncan and Chad from Endpoint came up and saw Split Lip and Hardball, and we all became friends. And yeah, and that was like that scene started happening. But here's, you know, we'll land the plane obviously at the beginnings of Hardball because here's how that first band, Outcast, turning into RFU, turning into Clear Sight, turned into Hardball. We did that one show. The Radiation Sickness dudes attempted to sabotage it, came and drank a bunch of beer and left liquor bottles and stuff all over the parking lot. And shows were never allowed to happen there ever again. We did that even score and trench mouth show. And we put up flyers for that in the cafeteria in Southport high school, the radiation sickness dudes and their friends defaced all the flyers, changed, tr- changed trench mouth to Mickey mouth, which I think is liquor, not knowing that that wasn't a straight edge band. You know, they just assumed all, yeah. the, all the bands in the show were straight edge. And so it was just all this, like, you know, you know, wrote shit about me on it, wrote shit about Reese, like just, you know, we're just being assholes. We were putting up clear sight stickers around. They were defacing those. And so it was becoming a thing. And so then you kind of start to get that gang mentality. And even though little John didn't know any of those dudes and he went to a different school, you know, there started to be, like, we started to have beef and we were again, to our credit, aside from the love triangle, we were blameless. We really thought we were, we were doing like hardcore unity, seven seconds. Let's all be pals style of straight edge and that's what we thought straight edge was and so on and so forth they were bullying us and trying to stop us from doing things now it was war and simultaneously with this what we discovered through maximum rock and roll were the bands in cleveland called die hard and confront who were militant straight edge straight edge bands who didn't take any shit who wouldn't be bullied by the punk rockers in their town and who fought back. And we took massive inspiration from that. It didn't even occur to us that that was a thing. We didn't know that being tough and being straight edge could coexist. And then we got the fucking Judge New York Crew 7-inch. And we had only played the one show as Hardball, or as, sorry, as Clear Sight. We'd never found a drummer. And we're in this feud with Radiation Sickness. We changed the name to hardball we wanted to come up with the toughest 
meanest name, and we adopted a militant straight edge mindset. Only knowing, only being aware of Die Hard Confront and Judge as being anything else, anyone else, anywhere that was doing that. But once we learned that was a thing that was possible, we were like, we're going to fight back. We got this drummer, Keith Steele, who was 19, which and when we were 15 and 16, it seemed like yeah, he was 40. Yeah, 100. We called him Uncle Keith. He had his own, he had his own place in a five o'clock shadow. It was crazy. And um, Keith became vegan straight edge for a while. And then, fuck, what really blew the doors open was six or seven months later when Hardline Records happened. And Maximum Rock and Roll had ads for Vegan Reich, Raid, and Statement. And I ordered all three of those seven inches. And that was, I mean, that was just, that was fucking it for us. That was, that literally, that radicalized Little John and I. <laughs> we were already on our path. <laughs> and that fucking, rat, you know, this peel box in Laguna Beach, California, that fucking radicalized us. And, and, and we went from being picked on and made fun of for being straight edge to turning the tables and being like, fuck you, we're fucking straight edge, you fucking drunk. You know, like, that was like the, the birth of militant straight edge in, in our little scene and in our lives. And I remember at the time, the Northside dudes, it, it, it created some division between the Southside straight edge dudes and the Northside straight edge dudes because they were, they were still peace, love in seven seconds, you know, like, <laughs> And we, and then, and the little John, and again, getting into this whole, like us knowing actual gangbangers, we had some gangbangers come to our, one of our first shows in Carmel with Split Lip <laughs> from, we had some sophomore high school, like gang dudes there in their colors and signs. And, uh, yeah, it was a weird, we were, it's a class division. It was a class. Yeah. It was honestly a class division. That's no joke. You know? And, and we were in, it was, I mean, North side were rich kids, South side were poor kids. That definitely played into it. And, you know, a lot of great friendships that persist to this day were formed. And I got my feelings hurt, which you couldn't address as a angry 15 year old. When, uh, I thought Reese started hanging out with the North side kids more than us South side kids. And so I distanced myself from him and we eventually kicked him out of the band. And I'm still reminded of it now in 2019. Hmm. <laughs> it's, it's funny because it wasn't until I got to be friends with you that I found out that Reese wasn't from Carmel because I just well, assumed he go. was one of the Carmel kids. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he and, and, I, you know, and, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I saw it like he abandoned me and he saw it like I, I ghosted him, you know, and there's definitely some, I'm sure we were both right and both wrong. But yeah, I mean, we were very, very close. We lived a walking distance from one another uh, he was a year older than me. He drove before I did. He drove me, you know, drove the two of us to school. You know, we did hardball together. We got the integrity single together and wore it, wore it out, playing it over and over in his Mustang that we drove around Southport. Like, you know, we were fucking tight. Well, that's the other thing. Like 15 and 16 is a huge dividing line. Like it is. Yeah. At 16, he can drive to Carmel and hang out with other people and you can't unless you go with him. And you know what? Reese is going to rake me over the coals for this. I can't believe I fucking just did this in this origin story. Reese wasn't in clear sight. He was in hardball. He was our friend with clear sight. He put on that show with us. He loaned us his PA. We practiced in his garage. He wasn't actually in the band. I totally forgot. We had a bass player named Corey Carlton, who was the first Christian punk I ever knew. <laughs> he was, he, and he was someone unlike, you know, as we think of like Christian metalcore kids and stuff. Now he was somebody who was a legit like punk and metalhead who found Christ at like 17 and, you know, 
sold all of his records and shirts and whatever. And he was, he was getting demos from the crucified and vengeance rising and, um, tape trading with people. And like, he knew about all these fucking Christian bands, like way before tooth and nail records early, he, early. He wasn't a D, but he didn't take any S from right. anyone. Exactly. And he was, he wasn't straight edge, but he was straight edge by default because he was drug free Christian guy. Yeah. So we, he was the bass player in clear sight and he, I can't believe I just, I tried to do some Corey Carlton erasure by accident. Uh, he went on to do a band called three nails, which I'm sure wasn't the only Christian band called three nails. Great dude. Still Facebook friends, amazing bass player. played with his fingers. But yeah. He was the bass player for clear sight. And when we did hardball, you know, Reese who was super into hockey, way early adopter with hardcore and hockey, you know, he had, he's the one who had the fucking hockey stick in his car. And like, you know, like when we became tough guys, and, uh, you know, I started bringing a baseball bat on stage and all those theatrics and all the tough guy shit and all the judge and later integrity stuff. It was all not to excuse it because it was ridiculous and funny and we were kids, but it was because we were bullied by another band and we were all positive and hippy dippy. And then we, we fucking turned into being dicks and we actually went to me and Reese and little John, just the three of us in retrospect. It's almost sort of terrifying. We went to a radiation sickness show purely to cause trouble. And we started a mini riot. We went to the show. It was at the Sherwood on the South side. It was radiation sickness. And I think FUCT from Nashville, a bunch of bands kind of in their scene. And it was a lot of dudes in jam shorts and long hair and drinking and partying and puking and, uh, you know, playing their crossover thrash. And the three of us came in matching hardball baseball jerseys <laughs> that were, that we had made at the mall, you know, that said hardball across the front and indie straight edge or something like that on the back. I don't know. One of those guys will probably remember. And we came and we intentionally started pit beef. I have a vivid memory that I can picture right now of a circle pit going and little John tripping people. We literally, the three of us started fights. And in our minds, it was like, you guys tried to fucking ruin our show. You know, like this was, it was like, now we're fucking, you know, we're fighting back, you know? And, and we were enamored by these stories we'd heard about Die Hard and confront and judge. And we went there to fuck shit up and we started a huge fight and yeah. And we fought a bunch of these dudes and then, uh, we left <laughs> and there was just like fights breaking out everywhere. And some of our other friends who weren't straight edge, like the dudes from dead Disney and some other beach Grove dudes, like they ended up in those fights as well. And I remember little John and Reese and I leaving and immediately going to Keith's house, our drummer and celebrating. Cause we were so proud of ourselves. That we started a huge fight at a show. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the lore. So that's my first band stories. This has been who's your illusion. I've been Ryan J. Downing. And I have been Neil Tafflinger.